I had so many of them mention to me, you know, gosh, I felt like I was talking to more than one person. Just the, the, the person they were talking with, their, it's like their, their tone changed, their demeanor, the way they were interacting with them. It just felt like I, they told me they felt like they were talking to different people. And the answer was, well, yeah, you were. You were because uh, what happens is once the initial intake is done, that initial interview, that conversation that they do with you, to basically try to figure out how much money do you have? Are you willing to invest? Are you, do you strike them as someone who might be fooled into you know, depositing money into these fake brokerages? A lot of times those initial chats are initiated by these frontline workers. And then once the person engages, that conversation gets taken over by the higher up. In episode two of Scam Rangers, we talked to Aaron West, prosecutor at Santa Clara County, California, about stories of victims of pig butchering scams or financial grooming, scams that start with someone reaching out via chat, WhatsApp, or SMS with someone who pretends that they're reaching by, out by mistake and then slowly starting a conversation, which turns into a relationship convincing individuals to invest in crypto. In the second episode of Scam Rangers, we talked to Matthew Friedman, an expert on human trafficking, about those scammers who are often trafficked into scam compounds in Southeast Asia in order to execute these scams. Today's guest will give us a different perspective of pig butchering scams and an update on their evolution. This episode is brought to you by Scam Ranger. Scam Ranger enables you to empower your customers to protect themselves against online scams. Go to scamranger.ai to learn more. Scam Rangers, a podcast about the human side of fraud and the people who are on a mission to protect us. I'm your host, Ayelet Bigger Levine, and I'm passionate about driving awareness and solving this problem. In this fascinating episode of Scam Rangers, I had a conversation with Cesare Podkul, a Hong Kong-based American investigative reporter at ProPublica, which is a nonprofit investigative newsroom which focuses on deep-dive, long-form investigative journalism. In 2022, Cesare was one of the first reporters to publish in-depth articles about the victims of financial grooming or pig butchering scams. The first three episodes of Scam Rangers are actually influenced by the information from his articles. And today we will talk to him about the atmosphere that enabled this massive operation of scam compounds in Southeast Asia, and also talk about how this scam operation had evolved since to become more global, more believable, and more efficient, finding new ways to manipulate victims. So hi, Cesare, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you here. Hi, Alec. Thanks for having me. Right. So I really wanted to hear a little bit about your background. Um, how did you get into investigating pig butchering scams and everything around that? What brought you to, to learn about this and how did you start? About two years ago now, uh, I was working on some stories related to unemployment insurance fraud and how that had exploded during the pandemic. There were a lot of people who had their identities stolen by identity thieves, and then they were used to file uh, fake claims for unemployment insurance and un state unemployment insurance system uh, lost billions of dollars when they added up in aggregate. So it was a big deal back then. And then uh, that got me curious about identity theft and how why was it so easy to steal people's identities? What had happened to 
make it such that you know my identity, your identity, you know, has been leaked multiple times, and it was sort of an easy answer, which was that actually companies were leaving lots and lots of data online unsecured, and very it was very easy for uh, cyber criminals very often just to find unsecured SQL databases online and just grab them, and then just start you know doing password stuffing and other types of you know credential attacks and other things. So I was in the midst of investigating that when. One of the sources I was talking to for that story, who was based here in the region, I'm in Hong Kong and he was in Vietnam, uh, he had actually just come back from the U.S. He had finished a jail term in the U.S. for stealing Americans' identities. Uh, he was prosecuted. His name is Human Nog. He became a white hat hacker and then discovered this problem and was trying to solve it. And, um, and in the midst of uh, talking about identity theft and how easy it became to steal Americans' identities because of all this data sitting around online, uh, he told me that he was seeing something else in the region, which was really troubling. And that was really the first moment when I heard of these scam compounds that are scattered across the region where people are being forced to scam and uh, are perpetrating this thing known as a pig butchering scam, which uh, I hadn't heard about either. So it was really through that sort of very organically you work on one story, kind of get another idea, you work on another story, you get another idea. That's sort of the way I found my way uh, into it uh, about two years ago. So we're talking about over a year ago now where you started investigating this topic and you started publishing articles on ProPublica, I think three or four articles that discussed this type of scam where individuals in Southeast Asia are targeting victims all over the world and forming this relationship that lasts a couple weeks, maybe up to a month or so, and then entice them to invest in crypto and essentially get them to invest all their money up to the latest dime and then ask for taxes before they can cash out, known as pig butchering scams, financial grooming scams, crypto. We talked a lot about this type of scam in actually in episode two of Scam Rangers with Aaron West, a prosecutor in Santa Clara County. And we also talked about the human trafficking involved in this in episode three, when we talked to Matt Friedman, who's also based out of Hong Kong, a lot of information we brought in these two episodes actually was influenced by your articles. So I'm really excited to close the loop today and get more insight from you on this topic. So tell me what you learned. How did this all get started? How did pig butchering financial grooming become a thing uh, based on, on the research that you've done how did the ecosystem allow this type of scam to evolve? Yeah, there's a uh, lot to dig into there. Um, in terms of the ecosystem itself, confidence scams like these, where you convince someone to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do by grooming them, you know, those have been around for, for, for a long time. What's different here is how they've been you know, transformed and powered by a combination of technology, you know, messaging apps that allow people to target anyone anywhere on a WhatsApp or Telegram or whatever other messaging platform that allows us to connect across borders. So you can now do those sorts of scams uh, instead of just locally in your country, you can target foreigners. So that's one thing that kind of supercharged this. Another thing that really supercharged this is the growth of cryptocurrencies, which uh, enabled cyber criminals to very quickly move money across borders seamlessly with low transaction costs, peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, and so they can not only target people by, with their messages to try to convince them to invest in a fake brokerage that they just created online, but then if that person 
starts transferring their life savings into a wallet and then starts you know depositing it into a, a, a scam wallet they gave this person without knowing that they're not actually making money with each transaction they're actually losing money with each transaction it's very easy for them to just grab that money and keep moving it and move it and move it and move it through the blockchain and then cash it out somewhere for fiat currency and another exchange somewhere. So the cryptocurrency piece of it was a major element as well that really enabled to go global. Uh, and I think the third thing that really powered it, and I know this from just some of the more recent research I've done, is really, you know, we've had this explosion of construction uh, in the gambling here in Southeast Asia. And I think that definitely contributed to the parallel growth of the illicit economies in the region because the, the casinos that grew up here in this region, they're, they're, a lot of them, they're not regular casinos. They do a lot of money laundering, uh, not just for cyber criminal enterprises, but also for drug trafficking and other illicit trades that happen in the region, like wildlife trade. There's just a lot of that happening in the region, and these casinos have kind of grown up as this uh, shadow banking system for these cyber criminal groups. They had these casinos that then emptied out during the pandemic, had all this real estate that was waiting to be used. So it was kind of the means, the motive, and the opportunity, and that all kind of really just came together during the pandemic when all of us were sort of glued to our iPhones and our Android phones, social distancing, kind of feeling lonely, and then a lot of these romance scams then took off, and it was just really the cross-section of all of these disparate elements that came together that made this uh, become a global threat. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. That's a a lot uh, together. First of all, you talked about these casinos being constructed and acting as shadow banks for the organized crime. So how did, first of all, are are casinos allowed in most countries in Southeast Asia? Is that gambling is legal? What is going on there? Let's start with that. So gambling is illegal in China with the exception of the Macau Gambling Hub. Um, So uh, with the exception of Macau, you can't uh, build and operate casinos in China. Once you go outside of China, across the region, there's a lot of countries that have not only allowed casinos to be built in the last few years, but also just encouraged that as a form of foreign direct investment. So you saw Cambodia, for example, doing a lot to lure Chinese investors to build casinos in cities such as Sienikville, which is this coastal city in Cambodia where tons and tons of casinos, you know, we're talking about dozens and dozens of casinos were built since 2016. Uh, A lot of that construction, not just in Cambodia and also in the Philippines, but in other countries, a lot of that happened post-2014. And that's a key year because that's when in China there was the beginning of the crackdown on illicit gambling and that put a lot of pressure on junket operators in Macau. So they kind of started moving elsewhere in the region. And a lot of the organized crime groups that have taken root there started looking for other places where they could go do business outside of Macau. So they needed a place to go. And at the time where they were looking around thinking, where are we going to go if we can't be in Macau? We had the Philippines welcoming casinos and online gambling. And then once that happened, uh, China put pressure on the Philippines to crack down on uh, these illegal gambling operations that were targeting Chinese citizens. China didn't want these offshore gambling operations targeting Chinese citizens. The only place where they wanted gambling to be happening was Macau. And they didn't want people being targeted with online casinos and betting money and then having uh, money leave China you know, via legal gambling operations. So China put pressure on the Philippines to crack down on that. They looked elsewhere. Cambodia was sort of open for business, so they moved on there and then started building more casinos and opening more of these online gambling operations there. And then same thing, China put pressure on Cambodia to crack down on that. Uh, Cambodia did limit online gambling in 2019. There was a huge exodus. A lot of people left. 
again, they started looking elsewhere, and then Myanmar, they started you know, building more of them. So it's kind of this game of whack-a-mole, one after another. And meanwhile, you also had some already established gambling hubs, uh, like, for example, in the Golden Triangle area in Laos, already had uh, King's Romans there. And that you know, is a well-known area. There's just a lot of you know, criminal activity there that's been well-documented and tied to that area. So just a lot of these places really popped up one after another and have been mushrooming uh, ever since. As of the last article I wrote earlier this month, looking at the nexus between these casinos uh, and the gambling sector here in Southeast Asia and money laundering, the uh, researchers over at the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime have counted over 340 physical casinos in Southeast Asia. The, the thing that's interesting here is that a lot of times they're located in very remote areas. I mean, these are not places you would think about going to have like the weekend with friends, you know, in Las Vegas, where you catch a show, you may have a go to a restaurant, there's, you know, tons of stuff to do. I mean, they're in very remote places. Um, and they're not places where people would, you know, think about this is the, the place to gamble. And so why do these casinos, some of them still have a lot of activity. And if you look at some of their telegram channels, you see people with tons and tons of money, like, where is this money coming from? And the answer appears to be that they enable a lot of uh, money laundering. Uh, for various illicit activities and they're very uh, helpful conduit to have for all these criminal groups in the region. The Chinese government doesn't want all any of this and they're cracking down on the casinos. They don't want their citizens to be engaged in this type of activity. What's happening in Cambodia? Why is it allowed there? Why is it allowed in, in other countries in the area? What do they see? I can think about the angle of the you know foreign investment and building and construction and all the kind of quote unquote positive things that are coming out. But if these casinos are involved in criminal activity, even before we get into financial grooming, big butchering scams, how are they allowing it? What's going on there? Um, I think the main and the answer is really it's the, it's seen as a boost to the local economy and foreign direct investment. You know, the fact that it happens to be an illicit economy is sort of very often, in, at least in Cambodia, seen as a secondary concern, I think. The, the main reason for welcoming the casino sector and online gambling really was, you know, it was going to promote uh, a foreign direct investment. It was going to turn Sienicville into like the next Macau or the next Las Vegas. And it was also going to bring in tech and all kinds of other investments. It was really seen as a platform for development. So in, if that was sort of the thinking in Cambodia. Um, in, uh, in Myanmar, I think the, the, the groups that started building casinos there were originally facing some opposition from the government, but then the, the 2021 coup happened, the uh, Myanmar military took over, and uh, with the civil war that's been raging there for the last two years, really, uh, the fact that this is bringing in a lot of illicit activity um, has actually, in, in some ways, been helpful to the junta because some of the border guard forces that are aligned with them are allowing these casinos and allowing these uh, criminal groups that control them to operate there. All this construction is happening to build new casinos uh, for a few years, and then the pandemic hits in late 2019, early 2020. Things are shut down. What happens to all these casinos and all the construction there? They didn't have any customers. When there were the travel restrictions in place, the gambling floors emptied out. Uh, the customers that they were expecting weren't there. Um, the workers, you know, a lot of the workers that were going to be there, you know, just everything kind of emptied out. Uh, same thing for these uh, offices that were going to house these uh, online gambling operations where you can just imagine, you know, off these sort of office settings where you have, you know, lap, you know, computers set up where people would sit there and, and run online gambling operations. 
that real estate basically needed a, a, to be repurposed. Um, and it needed to be repurposed at the worst possible time, right? Because um, you had this confluence of events that I mentioned earlier happening where people are stuck at home. So all of these people uh, around the world are able to be reached via these uh, app messaging apps that we can use across borders. A lot of people are getting on crypto, uh, are becoming familiar with crypto. They can transfer tokens easily. Uh, are dabbling in it, and uh, and then these uh, gambling operations, which are expecting this huge inflow of tourists or uh, online gamblers, you know, and workers who, who work at these online gambling outfits, they just that wasn't happening. That thesis obviously got hugely interrupted by the pandemic and all of the uh, travel restrictions, border restrictions, and so you know they needed something else to do, and they got that's how kind of they found their way to online scamming and pig butchering scams, which already were happening in China. As of you know, before 2019, there's an article like this was in Xinhua in uh, December 2019. That the phrase "pig butchering scam" was introduced as one of the most popular phrases that year. I think it was for 2019. So it was already a well-known phrase. The phrase "pig butchering" was well-known in China. That that tactic had already spread in China, and so that's that's what enabled this you know terrible experiment in cybercrime really to take off. Was just sort of the opportunity to do it. Um, and then having all this uh, empty real estate that they could you know, repurpose. And that's also what led to the outgrowth of then human trafficking, because with the borders closed and not being able to attract workers, you know, kind of lead through the legal channels and going crossing borders legally, they needed some way to staff up these operations. And so they turned to human smugglers and fake job posts that would promise you um, a well-paying job if you come work here in Poipet or Sinaquil or any of these other uh, gambling hubs across the region. And of course, when you showed up for the job, as you know from the previous episodes you've, you've recorded on this, you know people are then then find out that it's not the job they expected; it's a scam job. And so you said something really interesting. This term was already widespread and one of the most commonly known new terms in China in 2019. Yet we only started hearing about it in 22. How did that happen? How did it take so long for us to to learn about this widespread event and bring it bring it up to our knowledge here? We only started hearing about this, you know, I would say early 2022. And when I say we, I mean law enforcement. And we know that many victims of this type of scam are in the U.S. as well as other countries across the world. So, yeah, it was already well known there. The reason we only found out about it uh, later was because the criminal syndicates that were practicing this, this scam in China decided to pivot and start targeting foreigners during the pandemic. Uh, again, because they had the opportunity to repurpose all of these empty uh, offices and gambling facilities across the region. When we, had, when we started this podcast in, in December of 2022, we talked about mostly Chinese scammers, be it witting or unwitting, some were lured into it with the fake jobs, like you said but mostly Chinese that were brought into Cambodia, into Laos, into Myanmar. And then some of them, the ones that were unwitting, were forced to work 14, 16 hours a day, beaten up, and very, very hard stories about this. But it was mostly them and mostly targeting people originally from China in other countries, such as the U.S. or other places. So tell me a little bit about how this evolved, one, from a scammer perspective the people actually execute the scams are they are they still chinese let's start with that question and then i'll ask you another question about the, the actually the the mode of operation of the scam and how that evolved 
Yeah, it's a great question. So in terms of the people actually perpetrating the scam, uh, the you have to kind of differentiate between the bosses and the lower level workers. The term that that's used inside of these scam compounds is the dogs, the dog pushers who are pushing out the scams. So the frontline workers in this, the people actually at the computers who are doing the initial chats. Um, so the people who are doing the customer intake, if you will, in that kind of grotesque equation. They're now being recruited from around the world, really. I've interviewed people from as far away as Brazil who have been trafficked into some of these scam compounds. Uh, I think the Human Research Consultancy uh, put out a report earlier this year where they listed all the different countries. They had a great map, and I think they had like more than 20 countries on there, people from India, Bangladesh, uh, more countries in Africa that we've been hearing about, like uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, pretty much every country in Southeast Asia that we know of, Russia. Uh, so really, you know, it's gone global in terms of the recruiting. Some of that recruiting now is is no longer just about human trafficking. Some people are now coming there willingly because uh, for whatever reason, they decide that this is something they want to do. Maybe they don't have a lot of opportunities and, and, it's, uh, and then the recruiting is now a wider net. We're talking about many countries across the world in Africa in Latin America, uh, across Asia, as far as as far away as Brazil and Russia and elsewhere. We've heard of some recruits from the United States, uh, not a large number. You hear scattered stories here and there of people from the United States being lured into these operations. Um, that's, uh, I think, from what I've been hearing, is a smaller number, but there have been people from as far away as the U.S. as well. Um, but uh, in terms of the most common places now, you're hearing um, Asia, uh, the uh, Africa, Indian subcontinent, um, places like that, some from Latin America as well. And also there was a disturbing story just a few days ago about one of these, a scam operation uh, busted in Peru that had people from Malaysia who had been trafficked there. And so the other disturbing trend that we're seeing is that these scam compounds are no longer just operating in Southeast Asia. This illegal business, obviously a criminal business model, is being tested elsewhere. So it's no longer just Southeast Asia, and I think that's one of the more alarming trends. Um, but in terms of the people who are running it, at least here in Southeast Asia, by and large, from what we're hearing, it's still uh, very much Chinese criminal groups that are operating these uh, syndicates who are luring the workers, who are um, very often, they're the ones doing the actual pig butchering. Because one of the things I heard early on when I was talking to pig butchering scam victims was, I had so many of them mention to me, Oh, gosh, I felt like I was talking to more than one person. Just the, the, the person they were talking with, their, it's like their, their tone changed, their demeanor, the way they were interacting with them. It just felt like I, they told me they were, felt like they were talking to two different people. And the answer was, well, yeah, you were. You were because uh, what happens is once the initial intake is done, that initial interview, that conversation that they do with you, to basically try to figure out how much money do you have? Are you willing to invest? Are you, do you strike them as someone who might be fooled into you know, depositing money into these fake brokerages. They have a car, they have a house. Like, what are your assets? Like, how much can they take you for? The, those initial conversations that, that are very innocent and innocuous, a lot of times those initial chats are initiated by these um, uh, frontline workers. And then once the person engages, once you decide, you know what, I'm going to give it a try, I have nothing to lose, that conversation gets taken over by the higher up. The bosses take over, and they're the ones who are very expert at having these um, uh, conversations with people and all they do is psychologically manipulate people all day long into depositing their life savings into these fake apps, fake uh, brokerages. But that's the reason, you know, this is such a, uh, uh, an effective scam. It's because of that psychological manipulation and that manipulation is being done by people who 
are very good at it because that's all they do all day. But the reason they're so skilled at it is because that's you know, they see nothing wrong with it. They just see it as a way of making money, um, and they you know they psychologically manipulate people into parting with large sums of their life savings. If you suddenly get a, an unknown or an unsolicited, hi, this is a wrong number or whatever, and then a picture from a pretty Asian woman, then it's likely a pig butchering scam. But what I'm hearing from you now is by recruiting people from other nationalities, they can actually do a lot more. They can go and they can have a video call in many languages because they do have that line of people that can speak in other languages, target people from their own cultures, even if they're forced to do that, and actually have conversations to make it seem even more real, not even getting into deep fakes and AI and all that, but really just using these people in those languages, they can reach out not just to Chinese nationals in, in foreign countries, but to, to anyone. Yeah, no, it allows them to cast a very wide net. And that's a good point. You know, it, it kind of underscores how the tactic has changed over time. Um, early on, like and by early on, I mean, gosh, only like two years ago, early on, right? Um, but, you know, often you were hearing these stories from some of the first people who were um, uh, falling victim to these pig butchering scams. You were hearing about how um, the person they were talking to would always refuse to get on camera. And that was one telltale sign that you were talking with a scammer. That's no longer true. Um, just be, you know, uh, just because you're talking to someone and they're willing to get on camera with you and have a conversation with you, doesn't mean that you're not going to get scammed. Now they're recruiting people who are willing to basically be models and kind of do this for a living. Just hey, let's let's talk, and I'm just going to talk to people all day and pretend I'm real and see how much money they can deposit into these uh, scamming operations. So the you know, I really, you know, if there's one key takeaway that anyone listening will have from this conversation is, you know, these tactics, these scams are evolving um, as we speak. And that's why law enforcement has to do more to stay one step ahead of them to really keep track of everything that's, that they're doing, the way these uh, tactics are morphing. So you talked about two years ago, and I know that according to the Global Anti-Scam Organization, uh, about 40 countries were targeted uh, about this time last year. What are we seeing now in terms of the targeting of victims? So I checked with uh, the Global Anti-Scam Organization on this statistic as well. And I think it was uh, last I checked with them, it was over 100, over 100 countries. And then when I ranked the list alphabetically, I think it went from Algeria to Zimbabwe. So A to Z, really. I mean, we're talking A to Z, over 100 countries. Uh, with the United States still being, the U.S. still being by far the largest target. So um, it's it's definitely a global threat. Uh, we saw that in the Interpol notice that uh, went out over the summer where Interpol warned that this is a, a global threat and that's uh, more entrenched than we thought before. It's really you know scamming being done on an industrial scale. Um, and uh, because it's being done on an industrial scale from these scam uh, compounds across not just now in Southeast Asia, but it's you know starting up in other countries, that's why you're seeing such a big global footprint of these scams. It's really, I think it's on, you know, it's, I don't think it's a stretch to say it's unlike anything else we've ever seen before in terms of its global reach, how many countries are being targeted and how many different languages. It's pretty much, I mean, the, the population the, that they're trying to reach is really anyone with a smartphone anywhere. And that's really scary when you think right. about it. And in terms of the modes of operation, I'm really familiar with two types of reach outs. One is via 
WhatsApp or Skype or Telegram or something like that, where they reach out kind of wrong number and start a conversation. Oh, is this, is this John? No. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, where are you from? And then they start a conversation that turns into this relationship, not necessarily a romantic one, but a friendship. And then you, they start with the grooming and everything that you talked about and, and show a flashy lifestyle and convince someone to invest in crypto. The other one is those crypto investment groups where you suddenly are invited to join a group chat and they have this guru who is like the best and most they there's someone who introduces the guru and then the guru gives signals when to trade and people start showing their gains and then you feel like you want to join and i basically i i had a friend i had to talk out of this and he's like but everyone's making money there and I'm, I said, no, they're all bots. Nobody's making money or they're all people who are, are uh, it's just you who's the victim here. Are there un, any other uh, types of, of kind of initiation that we've seen into this scam that are different than those two? Yeah, so one obviously is also the fake profiles that they set up on uh, LinkedIn or Facebook or other um, you know social media platforms, and they uh, will use that to lure victims that way. They'll they'll like a, a photo you posted, start a conversation, or just message you privately on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever. So we've seen that attack uh, route as well. Um, the other one that I'm seeing here that. Um, might come your way for those of you listening in the United States, I might as well warn you now, is we're seeing a lot more, we're inundated here in Hong Kong with these messages about uh, these fake recruitment messages where basically they're recruiting you to these uh, job scams. So I get these messages, here's one I got the other day, this is uh, you know, someone saying, hello, I'm from Maxim Recruitment Company, we are urgently looking for candidates to work in our partner companies for full-time, part-time freelance work. And, you know, are you interested in more details? And then if you say yes, they send you details about this job. And it's like, do these simple little tasks online, like this video, click on that, you know, whatever it is, it's super simple. You can do it at home, flexible schedule. And uh, the way it works, oh, you got those too? So it's already there, yeah. I got yesterday, I got, uh, hi, are you doing right now? I'm Mila Russell from BBDO, Advertising Media Marketing Services. We're looking for full-time, part-time employees in the United States, can I share more information with you? And then basically she told me that uh, they're asking for people to influence um, ratings of hotels. And I said, wait, so you want us to, the the job is to write fake reviews? So it was the the conversation, I didn't continue it for too long, but just from the reach out, like we're looking for people in the United States, the pay is too high, the hours are too low, something is off there. Yeah, if you do engage, the the end game is basically to try to get you. It's a pig butchering scam. Just it's a different version of it. There's an Indian cybersecurity firm that just did an excellent report on this. They were looking at this uh, task scam. Basically, uh, they uncovered this huge operation where basically the the syndicate was basically creating these fake employment websites. It looked like legitimate companies' websites, except with like a slightly different URL. So you feel like, oh, I'm going to work for a legitimate company and you sign up you have to do these simple online tasks and uh, the first time you do it you get a payout so you earn some uh, decent amount of money it's not it's not too little but it's not too, you know but it's not insignificant either it's enough for you to feel like okay uh, maybe this is worth it maybe i should do it again and then if you do it again then you know there's like a bonus special promotion where you'll earn even more money than you did before you know twice or 
twice twice as much or more, and it kind of the pot keeps growing, it doubles and doubles and keeps growing, and so you're encouraged to keep working, except to keep working and to keep to, to keep the pot growing, you got to start putting money in. So now instead of just you do the tasks and you earn money, now you got to do the tasks and you got to put in more money. And here's the thing: there just starts to be more and more and more of these tasks, and pretty soon you you realize you're on this endless conveyor belt. The tasks never end, and it keeps asking you to put more money in. And at some point, if you doubt whether it's a scam, you know they might put you in a chat group with other people who are like, "No, I made so much money, it's real," you know that kind of thing. So it's a it's a really scary scam tactic, but it's a it's really because you have the initial payout and you have the social manipulation and the grooming because they condition you to thinking it's real. But uh, definitely, if you have a random stranger kind of messaging you out of the blue, offering you, know, saying, "I saw your." Resume on a job hunt website, or, or sometimes they tell you it's on Glassdoor or something. And can I send you more information? Um, the only reason you should engage is if you want some entertainment value to try to figure out you know, to, to get a laugh out of. But definitely, don't don't uh, don't think that it's real. And the company that did the report, it's Cloud SEK. It's this uh, cybersecurity firm in India that did a, a really solid research report on this. So that's what I was reading, and I thought. I really liked the way they explained it because it kind of I was getting all these messages and I was like I know this is a scam but I don't know exactly how this works. Yeah, I thought it's I thought it's an advanced fee scam where you uh, need to pay or buy a computer or you know something on their order on their website and they'll reimburse you or something like that. But I did not imagine that this is another hatchet into another pathway into uh, the pig butchering scam. And it is it is scary because they already get you to build this commitment and they already get you to get money and invest. So they put you in that dopamine cycle without you noticing. Exactly, because you got some money. So it's got to be real because the first time I did it, I got paid. So you're conditioned to think you're going to get paid again because you got paid uh, initially. And so that's where I see the similarity with the pig butchering because with the pig butchering scam, you know, uh, initially people think it's real because they can withdraw some money. When they make uh, some withdrawal requests early on from these fake brokerages, the scammers allow you to withdraw a small amount, or sometimes multiple times, or sometimes if they think they're reeling in a big, big fish, they'll change their tactics. And they'll. I've heard of some people being able to withdraw you know, pretty sizable amounts as, you know, as sort of uh, uh, kind of exception to the rule to get them to keep investing, to get them to, to keep thinking it's real. And so that similarity is there. They kind of let you get some money out of it at first so that you think it's real. And then they convince you to keep putting some money, keep putting money in so that you, um, so that you keep doing it and keep losing more and more. Wow. So what are you going to write about next? I'm always looking for suggestions. So if anyone has any ideas on what we should be writing about or what we should be covering, whether it's honestly, whether it's online scams, fraud or otherwise, uh, you know, the, uh, the public are always listening to our readers and uh, taking reader suggestions on interesting uh, story ideas and angles. And so if you have a good story idea or news tip, definitely get in touch. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and uh, definitely we'll share everything in the show notes, everything that you shared with me uh, in terms of resources and articles. And uh, keep up the good work. Thank you for bringing all this information to us so we can be careful. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by ScamRanger. ScamRanger enables you to empower your customers to protect themselves against online scams. Go to scamranger.ai to learn more.